Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. As news of the arrest and footage of the unassuming man was splashed across every television network, people were shocked. Bernie looked like an everyman, someone you'd walk past on the street and not even think twice about. Aside from his distinctive glasses, which people were familiar with from the police sketch, he appeared nothing like what the public had imagined. Extradition was waived, and on January 3, 1985, Bernie was brought back to New York City. He was arraigned on four charges of attempted murder and criminal possession of a weapon and held at Rikers Island. The Guardian Angels and right-wing civil rights organization, the Congress of Racial Equality, launched a highly publicized campaign to raise money to cover Bernie's bail of $50,000 and his legal costs. 
But in the end, Bernie paid his bail himself and was released on January 8th, pending trial. Bernie was free to walk the streets, but this may have been more of a curse rather than a blessing. Everywhere he went, he was tailed by reporters and news cameras. Desperate for a comment from the man whose controversial actions had divided the city, the case was so high profile that some enterprising New Yorkers had taken to selling merchandise, like t-shirts and bumper stickers, advocating for Bernie. Down in the subway, other stickers plastered inside the subway cars declared, quote, Ride with Bernie. He gets them. Bernie and his legal team flatly denied that the shooting was racially motivated. Later that same month, Daryl Cabey's lawyers filed a $50 million civil suit against the accused man. Those who believed that Bernie genuinely feared the young men would beat and rob him used the young men's prior criminal convictions to justify Bernie's actions. Some took the view that the men had no intention of robbing Bernie and had simply been panhandling. Others believed the men had likely asked Bernie for money or were adamant that his response was completely disproportionate. The episode Subway Vigilante for the documentary Trial by Media by director Sky Borgman details the massive amount of nationwide attention the case received. Days after Bernie returned to New York, then-President Ronald Reagan weighed in at a press conference. The president publicly denounced Bernie's actions However, he empathized with those who felt fearful of being victimized in the course of going about their daily lives. Bernie became the ultimate anti-hero, a poster boy of sorts for white fear and the right to self-protection. The National Rifle Association got on board with his supporters when it came to the question of New York State granting a greater number of gun permits. The organization kicked off an advertising campaign in New York newspapers to drive the point home that everyone had the right to self-protection. At a news conference, then-leader of the NRA, Richard Feldman, famously told reporters, quote, The government which cannot protect its citizens has no right to deny them the means to protect themselves. To further muddy the waters, the NRA gained an unlikely ally in the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, Chairman Roy Innes was already critical of the charges, publicly stating that he too felt that Bernie, and indeed anyone, should have the right to carry a firearm for self-defense purposes. Daryl Cabey was already a paraplegic, his spinal cord having been severed at the moment Bernie shot him. Two and a half weeks after the shooting, things took a turn for the worse. Daryl stopped breathing and fell into a coma. If he didn't pull through, Bernie would be facing one count of murder in addition to his weapons charge. Thankfully, Daryl regained consciousness, but he had sustained brain damage. He would never progress beyond having the cognitive capacity of a third grader. He wouldn't leave hospital until 14 months after the shooting and would be permanently reliant on a wheelchair. As if that wasn't distressing enough, the young men's families were being racially vilified via a significant amount of hate mail they received from the public. One letter to Shirley Cabey read, quote, I'm glad Daryl is paralyzed. He needs to sit his black ass in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And I'm so sorry that the other three 
can't join him. In late January 1986, the prosecutor sought for Bernie to be indicted for attempted murder, assault, reckless endangerment, and criminal possession of a weapon. Bernie's police interviews were played to the grand jury, but the accused himself didn't testify, nor did any of the four young men. If they had, they would have had to be granted immunity from prosecution. The grand jury only indicted him on one count of criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree and two counts of criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree. For possessing two 9mm pistols found during a search of Bernie's apartment, which he purchased in Florida only three months prior, but the attempted murder and reckless endangerment were dismissed. Unlawful possession of a weapon carried a maximum sentence of one year. Mayor Koch was amongst those who were pushing for this to become a mandatory sentence. Civil rights activists also became involved in publicly defending the young men. Led by the Reverend Al Sharpton, they demanded a federal investigation into the fact that it was African Americans who had been targeted. Reverend Sharpton and a strong contingent of the African American community were of the view that if Bernie had been mugged by a group of young white men, the outcome would have been very different. They didn't buy the theory that Bernie acted out of self-defense and claimed he was instead motivated by racial profiling and bigotry. Reverend Sharpton started holding weekly rallies. In speaking to the press, he explained that it wasn't necessarily about absolving the four young men of any and all responsibility. Instead, he felt it was about standing up against racial violence and challenging stereotypes. The episode Subway Vigilante, for the documentary Trial by Media, by director Sky Borgman, features several of Reverend Sharpton's media appearances during the case. On one occasion, he told the press, quote, We do not think that these boys are role models, but we don't think that Getz is either. We think five criminally-minded people met on the subway that day. But in the end, the U.S. Attorney, Rudy Giuliani, declined to proceed with prosecuting a federal civil rights case. In his view, there was insufficient evidence that the shooting was racially motivated. But the tide of public opinion was about to turn against Bernie. On February 27, 1985, the state prosecutor entered statements by Bernie into public record. This was part of their move for an order authorizing them to resubmit the dismissed charges to a second grand jury on the basis that new evidence had become available. Documents entered revealed that Bernie had told detectives during his interview, including his racist views and use of racial slurs, the motion was granted and a second grand jury was convened in March. Troy Canty, James Ramser, and four passengers who had witnessed the shooting testified. Again, Bernie chose not to testify, but this jury too saw his video interviews. These tapes were nothing less than a proverbial goldmine for the prosecution. In one excerpt from Bernie's interview, made available to the public, he said, quote, Look, what they were going to do is they were going to beat the fucking shit out of me, okay? The money, and this, and that, is all bullshit. 
When I saw this look, I knew what their intentions were. It was attempted cold-blooded murder. I don't deny that. Two were on my right and two were on my left. I knew at that point I would have to pull the gun. When I saw the smile on his face and the shine in his eyes, he was enjoying this. It was at that point I decided I was going to kill them all, murder them all, do anything. What happened here is I snapped. I sh I, I, look, if I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. The old, my problem was I ran out of bullets. and I was going to gouge one of the guy's eyes out with my keys afterwards. I, I ran up to the first two to check them who were on the ground, the first two that I had shot. And they were taken care of. It's all very cold-blooded, and I'm just going to offend everyone. I went back to the other two to check on them. And the fellow who was standing up, I was sure I'd shot him. It was funny. I wanted to give an honest answer. I don't know if I missed, but I, I went, I went to him the second time, and I looked at him. And he can't verify this because he was probably out of it by then. If I had shot him or if he wasn't, I don't know. And I said, you seem to be doing all right. Here's another. And the truth is ugly. It's disgusting. And I was a monster. I don't deny it. But I wasn't a monster until several years ago in New York. And if you have to become a monster to survive in that city, you can, you can condemn me for it. And you, and you, can, you, you guys are going to drag me through the dirt. And that's okay. You know? The city is so concerned about violence. Good, this is, quote, the most violent crime of the year. Great. New York City doesn't give a damn about violence. Otherwise, this would have never happened. Bernie had already told investigators he would have inflicted more pain on Daryl Cabey if he had the opportunity, saying, quote, If I were a little more under self-control, I would have put the barrel against his forehead and fired. I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to maim those guys. I wanted to make them suffer in any way I could. The media pounced on the possibility that Bernie had not only shot Daryl twice, but that the second shot was calculated and deliberately fired at someone who was clearly not a threat. In March 1985, the second grand jury indicted Bernie on four charges of attempted murder, four charges of assault in the first degree, one charge of reckless endangerment in the first degree, and one charge of criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree. It was now going to be near impossible for Bernie to argue that he was acting out of self-defense. The explosive revelation proved to be a catalyst for many people who abandoned any sympathy they had for Bernie. And his claim that he was the victim, not the aggressor, against the advice of his legal team, Bernie started the rounds of TV interview circuit. He was under a somewhat naive and misguided assumption that the media were his supporters and that speaking out could only gain him more empathy from the public. Instead, he exposed himself further as someone who was adamant that he was justified in shooting his victims, two of them in the back. Bernie was critical of the city and the government for not maintaining safety on the subway for New Yorkers but he didn't endear himself to anyone with his arrogant demeanor and lack of remorse. To further complicate matters, 
James Ramser had since made a police report that Bernie hired two men to abduct and murder him. This was soon discovered to be an intentionally false report. However, according to several accounts, James was not prosecuted. By this time, Troy was serving two years in a drug rehab center. That related to an offense he committed a few weeks before the shooting. In mid-October 1985, Bernie moved to have the state appellate division dismiss the charges contained in the second indictment. He alleged that the evidence before the second grand jury wasn't legally sufficient to establish the offenses charged and that the prosecutor's instructions to that grand jury on the defense of justification were prejudicial. The defense also claimed that James and Troy had perjured themselves, therefore undermining the second grand jury. This allegation came about due to an NYPD police officer who'd been one of the first on the scene. The officer informed the prosecutor that Troy had told the officer that the young men intended to rob Bernie. The court agreed and also rejected Bernie's contention that there was not legally sufficient evidence to support the charges. The court determined that all that had come to light was hearsay evidence, which conflicted with part of Troy's testimony. Troy and James' testimonies weren't the only evidence before the grand jury establishing that Bernie committed the offenses. Bernie's own statements, together with the witness testimony, clearly supported the charges. In and of themselves, this evidence provided ample basis for the argument that a trial would be required to determine the sequence of events. A trial was also the only way it could be determined whether Bernie could have reasonably believed that he was about to be robbed or seriously injured, and whether it was reasonably necessary or excessive for him to shoot the four young men in order to avoid any such threat. However, the court agreed that the prosecutor had erred by instructing the grand jurors to consider whether Bernie's conduct was that of, quote, reasonable man in his situation. The court concluded that the statutory test for whether the use of deadly force is justified to protect a person should be focused entirely on the defendant's subjective state of mind when he used such force. In the court's view, dismissal of the charges was required given that the justification issue went to the heart of the case. In January 1986, the appellate division granted the defense motion to dismiss the charges in the second indictment. Other than the reckless endangerment charge, it also agreed that Troy and James had perjured themselves based on a newspaper interview Daryl had done where he confirmed that the men planned to rob Bernie because he, quote, looked like easy bait. But Bernie's win was short-lived. Five months later in July, the New York Court of Appeals reversed the decision and ruled that the previous decision about Troy and James' testimony being perjured was pure speculation. The previously dismissed counts were reinstated. Bernie would be heading to trial. In the meantime, James had been convicted in March 1986 of raping, sodomizing, and robbing his 18-year-old neighbor on the rooftop of their apartment building at gunpoint in June 1985. At the time, the woman had been seven months pregnant. She was so badly injured as a result of the sexual assault that she required 18 stitches to her anus. James was sentenced to 25 years in prison and was well and truly incarcerated by the time Bernie's trial commenced. 
Jury selection commenced in December 1986, but the trial wouldn't commence until April 1987 amidst a media circus before a majority white jury, half of whom had experienced victimization themselves. Bernie was facing a total of 13 charges. Local demonstrators supporting Bernie and those supporting the victim showed up in force, waving placards and chanting. The question of whether Bernie had shot Daryl Cabey once or twice would be the clincher when it came to Bernie arguing self-defense. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. The prosecution called Bernie a, quote, emotional powder keg who overreacted. The prosecutor emphasized their position that in the case of Daryl, Bernie shot him twice, the second and final shot being taken at point-blank range after making a point to determine that he wasn't injured. The prosecution played Bernie's video confession in full. There he was, on tape, admitting it was nothing less than attempted murder, saying, quote, You're going to wipe the floor with me. I know it, okay? You have to. The reason you have to is so many rules have been broken. If you don't, what will this imply? If you say this wasn't wrong, it means people have to carry guns in New York, and the city will never admit that. Darrell was unable to give evidence due to his injuries, and Barry Allen, who was in jail at the time of the trial, took the Fifth Amendment. Troy Canty, who was in the middle of serving a sentence at a drug rehab program, testified that there was no intention of robbing Bernie, but admitted they had requested money from him. He claimed there was no intention to threaten Bernie with the screwdrivers, that these were for breaking into coin boxes. James Ramser proved to be a hostile witness. He had originally refused to give evidence, and his temper got the better of him in court under cross-examination, which resulted in him attempting to throw his shoe at Bernie's lawyer out of anger. James refused to continue his testimony. The judge ordered him to be removed from the courtroom and sentenced James to six months in prison for contempt of court. 
The defense used Bernie's videotape confession to their advantage. They worked to raise reasonable doubt as to his guilt by citing his assault from 1981. They argued that given the circumstances, Bernie's response was not only justifiable, but reasonable in reference to the level of force he used in attacking the four young men. Part of this involved their reliance on self-defense statute of New York, which stated, quote, a person may not use deadly physical force upon another person unless he reasonably believes that such other person is committing or attempting to commit one of certain enumerated predicate offenses, including robbery. The defense's ballistic expert gave evidence as the defense simulated a dramatic reenactment of the subway car scene in the courtroom using four African-American members of the Guardian Angels. For whatever reason, the judge allowed the reenactment to proceed despite the prosecution's objection that it was prejudicial. The defense introduced another hypothesis. They argued that Bernie's claim that he told Daryl, quote, you seem to be doing all right, here's another, was something he'd simply fantasized about saying, but didn't actually occur. They told the court that what had actually happened was that Bernie shot all four youths in quick succession. Therefore, there would have been no time for him to make such a statement between the fourth and fifth shots. The evidence was supported by numerous independent witnesses who were on the train, who testified that they heard rapid succession of gunshots with no pauses in between. Bernie did not take the stand in his defense. In summing up, the lead prosecutor made the point that if Bernie was sick of the level of crime in New York, he should move somewhere else. It was a risky thing to say in front of a jury who may not have been receptive to such a sentiment. After hearing seven weeks of evidence, the jury retired to consider their verdicts. Four days later, they returned with their decision. Bernie was found guilty, but only on one charge, which was unlawful possession of a firearm. He was acquitted on all other charges. There was pandemonium in the courtroom. Supporters of the victims were outraged. For them, the court had publicly condoned racially motivated crime, targeting the African-American community. The verdict struck not only anger, but fear into the hearts of African-American New Yorkers, fearing for the welfare of their community on the subway off the back of the verdict. At sentencing in mid-October 1987, the prosecution was determined for the state to send a message about the consequences of using unlicensed firearms. It was advocating for the toughest sentence possible. Bernie rejected this when he addressed the court, saying, quote, This case is really more about deterioration in society than it is about me. The prosecution seems to be concerned with society needing to be protected from me, and I don't believe that's the case. Society needs to be protected from criminals. But the judge ultimately disagreed. Bernie was sentenced to six months in jail, a $5,000 fine, one year psychiatric treatment, five years probation, and 200 hours of community service. He appealed the sentencing, but the following month, this was upheld by the New York Court of Appeals, which doubled it to a 12-month sentence. Eight months later, Bernie was released and went back to running his electronics business. According to the New York Times, Barry Allen was sentenced to one to four years for grand larceny and was paroled in October 1988. 
1991, Barry was in trouble again when he was convicted of robbery. He was released from prison four years later. In 2001, Bernie ran for mayor of New York City. He was unsuccessful, losing out to businessman Michael Bloomberg. The following year, James Ramser was conditionally released from prison, but returned in 2005 for violating his parole. He was eventually released in mid-2010, but the sweet taste of freedom was brief. In 2011, 27 years to the day after he and his friends were shot in the subway, James was found dead in a Bronx motel room. According to the New York Post, the 45-year-old had taken his own life as a result of drug overdose. The Daily News reported in November 2013 that Bernie has been arrested for allegedly selling marijuana to an undercover police officer. However, these charges were dismissed a year later by a judge who ruled that the prosecutors had taken too long to prepare the trial. To this day, Bernie lives in the same apartment. 37 years on from the watershed case, the legal threshold in the state of New York has changed when it comes to relying on the use of deadly force as a justification for self-defense. If a person finds themselves defending charges involving the lethal use of force, juries must now take into account the specific background of the defendant and considering whether a reasonable person would feel like their life was in danger. Barry Allen's current whereabouts are unknown. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Troy Canty was placed on 12 months probation in 1990 for shoplifting. He was believed to have gone on to work as a mechanic and as of 2013, was said to still be living in the Bronx, but he too appears to have faded into obscurity. Daryl Cavey lives with his family, relying on others caring for him as a result of the injuries sustained in the shooting. To date, he has now received a dollar from the man who paralyzed him. And for today, I think that about wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.